Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Podcast named Barb, writes, Scott, can you research the murder of Dr. and Mrs. Payne in Jackson, Wyoming in the mid to late 60s? Still another story I had not heard of until it was suggested to me. And what a story it turned out to be. Hopefully you've had the experience at least once in your life of taking that vacation to a specific location that's just perfect for you. For some, it might be the beach. For some, the snow. For some, it's a far-flung continent. And for some, it might be a new place very near home. If people are tied to places at some deep inherent level, and I believe they absolutely are, and if you happen to discover one of those places on a vacation, it's pretty tempting to think about making that vacation permanent. What if I just live here? Emmeline Payne had been taken by the natural beauty of Wyoming, as so many who see it for the first time are, but especially by the Jackson Hole area. She took her first family trip to Jackson in the early 1960s. And as that vacation came to a bittersweet end and she returned to her home near Las Vegas, all she could think about was how beautiful it must be in the winter there. And so, in the first part of 1964, she returned to the Cowboy State, and she was not disappointed. Emmeline Payne was so moved by that experience that she wrote a column about it in the Las Vegas Review-Journal that April, titled Flight to Snowland, Lovely Jackson Hole. After several henceforth annual trips to Wyoming, Emmeline and her husband, Dr. Martin Payne, finally did move to Jackson Hole in January 1965. Martin Payne was a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, one of those occupations you can take with you pretty much anywhere. He was well-regarded and renowned in the medical community, and he always had been. He'd studied in New Jersey, practiced in California and Nevada, and now Wyoming. Emmeline and Martin had spent more than the year previous overseeing from afar the construction of what was to be their final home, their dream home, in their dream place. Their endless vacation had come true. As their house was now completed, and as Dr. Payne's medical practice became established in Jackson, the couple's only child, a son, Russell, was on his own fast track as a junior at USC in Los Angeles pursuing psychology. Emmeline Payne took no time at all to become entrenched in the Jackson social circles. She joined clubs, organized meetings, and she had opinions. Opinions she shared with the community, in private and in public, and in the newspaper. In August 1965, the couple's first summer in their newly built home, Emmeline Payne authored a scathing letter to the editor in the Jackson Hole Guide, complaining about the town dump. A fulminating cancer, she called it. The tone of the letter in the paper was sharp and direct, and probably would have garnered opinions from the locals about this outsider of Jackson, this doctor's wife, who had only recently moved to the area, built a big, beautiful house, and now was complaining about the way things were done around here. I can imagine Emmeline having written for a newspaper in Las Vegas, hounding the editors of the small Jackson Hole Guide relentlessly until finally they allowed her to work for the paper, first as just a photographer and then soon enough as a local contributor on stories about the hospital where her husband worked. 
By 1967, her articles on the hospital and other local happenings were appearing in the paper more often, and soon she had several articles published in the Casper Star Tribune, the paper with the largest audience in the state at the time, as the Star Trib's Jackson correspondent. Emmeline's published articles increased in frequency, and just like that, housewife Emmeline Payne had become a full-time reporter. In the meantime, to her list of obligations and associations, she added the local school district, for which she became the clerk. She was involved in local 4-H, other women's clubs, and just about anything else her increasingly busy schedule would allow time for. By 1968, Emmeline Payne was anything but a tourist to Jackson Hole. She was seemingly everywhere in the community, and her many writings about aviation and healthcare and the outdoors, among her other passions, had been printed all over the state. Writings that were increasingly serious in their subject matter. Emmeline was an unapologetic advocate for Wyoming's natural beauty. And while her reporting on environmental issues in the Tetons was journalistic, it wasn't always equally two-sided. She wrote about the area's ranching community and wasn't shy at all about covering in-depth the activities of civic leaders from the mayor to the city council to the area's various boards and commissions. She was also increasingly reporting on crime in the area. From writing sharp-edged letters to the editor, Emmeline Payne had quickly become a local journalist herself in practically no time. And along with that, everything else that job entails. With almost every local story she wrote, Emmeline would please some people's interests and run afoul of others. It is an unavoidable byproduct of such local reporting to make enemies. It was not known exactly when Emmeline Payne and her husband Martin, the orthopedic surgeon, disappeared. Part of the reason for the confusion was because Emmeline had already written a series of articles for the Casper Star Tribune on June 14th, 15th, and June 16th, 1969. And those articles ran in the paper. Trouble was, nobody had seen Emmeline since about June 11th, which was also about the time that Dr. Payne stopped reporting for work. And both of these things seemed highly unusual to those who knew the couple. On Monday, June 16th, the Casper Star Tribune ran its first front-page story, revealing to its readers that their Jackson correspondent, Emmeline Payne, and her husband had gone missing. By then, Teton County law enforcement officials and volunteers were already searching a 125-square-mile area surrounding the couple's home in Wilson for any signs as to what happened to them. Emmeline, at least, had been last seen on the previous Wednesday night, five days prior. Then, the couple's red-and-white Toyota Land Cruiser, usually driven by Martin, was found the following day near a local gun range, seven miles outside of town. The Paynes, being so prominent in the community, and Emmeline having reported on controversial civic issues, initially left police with few good places to start, or rather, too many different places to start looking. Grievances and maybe even enemies are inevitable in small-town politics anywhere in the country. In fact, another local resident announced their own intentions to run for Emmeline's role as the school board's clerk, even as Emmeline had only been missing for a week and a half. Hundreds of leads came into the Teton County Sheriff's Department. Too many tips to investigate, seemingly, and few of them were good. A hunter called police to report seeing something white and shiny in a local lake. He thought it might have something to do with a missing couple, so police responded to discover the item in question, a fish. A living, large, white sucker fish. The fish was apprehended by searchers and promptly released. 
Other leads were much more substantial, though, or at least had the potential to be. Where, for example, were the garbage cans that neighbors knew to have been at the home not long before? The cans identified with tape with the letters P-A-Y-N-E. Civil Air Patrol flew daily over the area to aid in the search, but spotted nothing. Investigators obtained and sent to the FBI for testing several stained items from the home and the couple's car, although initially they wouldn't elaborate further beyond stained items. As searchers scoured Teton County for the missing newspaper reporter and doctor, that very Friday night, a state patrolman named Sonny Lankford was at home with his family. Upon hearing a disastrous commotion outside, he opened his front door to find a yellow sports car had driven onto his lawn. Lankford grabbed his service weapon and essentially administered an off-duty traffic stop on his own front lawn. The patrolman learned that the driver was a 25-year-old in possession of a California driver's license, identifying him as Russell Payne, the only son of the missing reporter and doctor. Patrolman Lankford determined that Payne was intoxicated, having randomly crashed onto the property of, of all people, a Wyoming state patrolman. Russell Payne told investigators his parents had gone on a trip to the Grand Teton National Park for the weekend. Russell said that his mother had a newspaper interview scheduled there, and the two had decided to make a short vacation out of it. Through the cloud of what must have been an epic hangover, Russell said his parents must be fine. There was nothing to worry about. But as the questioning went on, Russell began to come up with different and varied other theories. Maybe on their way to the National Park, he speculated to police, they'd picked up a hitchhiker who had robbed them and, you know, killed them, left their body on the side of the road. This caught the interest of investigators, and detectives noted that Russell Payne appeared very nervous and upset throughout the questioning of him. He spent that weekend following his parents' disappearance in the county jail after being arrested for a DUI and a federal gun violation. Oh yes, the gun violation. The gun charges against Russell Payne were federal, and technically the charges were only for weapons parts. Those charges resulted from the search of the Payne residence, having uncovered a World War II-era gun called an L-39. But to call that weapon a gun is a vast understatement. It's more than seven feet long, and it's a weapon of war. It was used to destroy tanks on the Eastern Front in the 40s. Also found in Russell's part of the home where he lived with his parents were hand grenades and dynamite. As difficult as this might be to believe in today's society, authorities had trouble making the gun charge stick because Russell Payne owned that weapon, the anti-tank gun, entirely legally. It was properly registered, and authorities couldn't prove it had ever been in anyone else's possession other than Russell Payne's. Russell Payne was not a stupid man. He was a man also in possession of a degree in psychology from the University of Southern California. But after graduation, it would seem that Russell had stalled. He'd returned home to Wilson, Wyoming, three months earlier to live with his parents. Since returning, he'd work for a short time as a truck driver and then at a fish hatchery. But he wouldn't be around much longer. After facing a judge on the DUI that Monday, Russell was released. At which point, he left Jackson, he left Wyoming, as quickly as he could, and returned to his childhood home of Las Vegas, Nevada. But Russell could not run away from the fact that his parents were still missing, and inside of two weeks, Russell Payne was charged with murder, specifically one count of murder for the death of his mother. In Vegas, Russell Payne hired an attorney, an attorney his parents had used before when they lived there. 
So, yes, the same lawyer who had represented his parents in life would now defend their accused killer, their own son. But this was just not any attorney. The man Russell hired to help him with his several and still mounting criminal troubles back in Wyoming would one day become one of the most powerful people in the country. But in 1969, Harry Reid wasn't yet a member of the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate or a Senate leader or Democrat Party political power broker. Harry Reid eventually did become all of those things and more, and after he died in 2021, CNN carried his funeral live. He was eulogized by President Barack Obama. But Counselor Harry Reid, then just a young defense lawyer and state assemblyman in Nevada, claimed his client had been ill-treated while in custody for the DUI and gun offense in Wyoming. Russell hadn't been allowed to wear glasses or shave or even brush his teeth, Reid claimed. So, of course, his client would challenge extradition back to Wyoming, given such poor treatment. Harry Reid also pointed out that while his client was being arraigned for the murder charge in Nevada, he had never been arrested, and no corresponding warrants had ever been produced. All of those claims were true, at the moment, anyway. But the police investigation into the presumed murder of Russell's parents, meanwhile, was advancing nicely. Authorities revealed that blood had been recovered from inside the missing couple's car, We can assume it was Emmeline's blood, and likely that there was a lot of it, hence the murder charge for just her. Another area of blood was found on a bridge over the Snake River, two miles from the car, and nine miles south of Jackson. And the ground search finally revealed an item of significance, a brown jacket, believed to be Russell's, located about a half mile from the home. The jacket appeared to investigators to have been exposed to the elements for several days. For the DUI charge, Russell Payne was sentenced to 30 days in jail. Harry Reid claimed he would appeal that charge and asked a judge in Nevada in the meantime might his client be set free, pending appeal. The judge responded that yes, he would release Russell on his own recognizance to his mother and father. To which an exasperated Harry Reid responded, but that's impossible. Russell Payne was eventually freed on bond, but on Thursday, June 20th, 1969, Harry Reid received the arrest warrant that he, in a way, had been asking for, and Russell Payne turned himself into police in Nevada, as Harry Reid and his staff got to work fighting their client's extradition back to Wyoming. In July, the ground search of the Payne residence wound down. This remarkable account of what authorities believed happened to the Paynes around June 11, 1969, appeared in the Jackson Hole Guide a month later. Quote, The special Teton County investigator said that about 7 p.m. on June 11th, Dr. Payne and his son, Russell Payne, walked from their home to the nearby home of Wes Marks. About 8.30 p.m. that Wednesday, Russell Payne and Marks' son, Mike, went outside to practice shooting Mike's bow and arrow. However, Russell told Mike that the arrows were not of the proper length and told Mike to come to the Payne home at about 10 a.m. Thursday morning, June 12th. Dr. Payne and Russell Payne then returned to their home. The witnesses reported that two old logs had been placed across the driveway leading to the Payne home that Wednesday evening. Russell was seen driving a yellow sports car toward Wilson about 10.15 p.m. and returning shortly thereafter. The logs apparently were removed from the right-of-way at about that time. Mike Marks walked up to the house at 10 a.m. Thursday, and Russell met him at the front door, quote, as if he'd been waiting on him, end quote. The Payne's Toyota was not parked at the house. In Jackson, Mike purchased six arrows with hunting tips at the Jackson Sporting Goods, and Russell stopped at the Jackson Food Market and purchased some soft drinks. 
and a box of detergent soap. Russell and Mike returned to the Payne home between 10.45 and 11 a.m., and Mike went home. Approximately 1 p.m. June 12th, Mike walked to the Payne home to borrow a spark plug wrench and found the front door locked. However, Russell came out of the side door to the garage and loaned Mike a wrench from the workbench in the garage. Mike returned to the home at about 1.30 p.m. to return the wrench and saw Russell heading into the woods south of the house with a shovel, dressed in a short-sleeved shirt. Mike asked Russell what he should do with the borrowed wrench, and Russell replied he should put it on the workbench in the garage, which Mike did and returned to his home. That afternoon, Linda Marks baked cookies, which happened to be the favorite cookies of Dr. Payne, and Mike took the cookies to the Payne home at about 3.15 p.m., but found the door locked. However, Mike entered by a side door and placed the cookies on a kitchen counter. At approximately 10 o'clock that evening, Thursday, Russell appeared at the Mark's back door dressed in a camouflage hat, dark glasses, yellow knit shirt, rough-out cowboy boots, and was covered with black mud. The Mark's dog growled, and the Mark's asked Russell, What happened to you? Payne replied that he had fallen down the path between the two houses. The Payne's Toyota was seen parked across the highway from the Jackson Hole Rifle and Pistol Range at about 7 a.m. Friday morning. Russell Payne went into Jackson at about 8.30 a.m. Friday, June 13th, and purchased a double-bed-sized mattress at Benson's Hardware and returned to the Payne home at about 9 a.m. At 10 a.m., law enforcement officers appeared at the Payne home checking on the missing doctor who had failed to appear for a staff meeting at St. John's Hospital. The staff said Dr. Payne has never missed a medical staff meeting. He was extremely conscientious. Law officers also noted there was a large fire in the fireplace and that Russell Payne had what appeared to be mattress lint on his trouser legs below the knee. Law officers left and Russell Payne left in the yellow sports car. Law enforcement followed him through Grand Teton National Park, up to the Moran turnoff and back to Jackson. Payne then went to the home of Dr. John Walker and then to the home of Wyoming State Patrol Lieutenant Sonny Lankford, where he was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. Officers under the authority of a search warrant investigated at the house and all kinds of weapons were taken from the home, three of which can't be located, but which they knew he had. The search grids will now include an area about one-half mile south of the Payne home where a brown jacket was found on June 23rd. The jacket is believed to be owned by Russell Payne. It would take an additional month for searchers to find Russell Payne's mother and his father. Both bodies were located in a shallow grave on the hillside of a garbage dump two miles from their dream home, the home they'd built to move into in the Tetons in their attempt to make a magical vacation a permanent part of their lives, and which was now a permanent part of their deaths. An autopsy later revealed that both husband and wife had been shot in the head. After initially fighting for his client to be released on bond, Harry Reid withdrew that request after the state of Wyoming formally filed extradition to have Russell Payne returned to Wyoming. But Reid's wrangling was successful in delaying the prisoner's transfer for months into the fall of 1969, while also trying to cut a deal with prosecutors to have the first-degree murder charges against Russell Payne reduced. In December, a Cheyenne grand jury indicted Payne on six weapons charges related to the guns in the family's home and for other items, and not even Harry Reid could keep Russell Payne from the inside of a Wyoming courtroom. So after the first of the year in 1970, and six months since fleeing Wyoming for Nevada, 
Russell Payne was returned to Jackson to face the murder charges against him for the deaths of his parents. In the end, Counselor Reed was successful in striking a deal with Wyoming authorities, a deal which incensed the rest of the Payne family, and on January 5, 1970, Russell Payne appeared in court to plead guilty to manslaughter in exchange for the state dropping two first-degree murder charges against him. It would seem that prosecutors were unsure of their evidentiary case against Russell Payne. At the end of the day, one prosecutor stating in court that only Russell Payne, his parents, and God truly know what happened that day. Harry Reid countered that manslaughter would have been the proper charge anyway, as his client was under the influence of drugs on the day that his parents died. The state said that claim was misleading. Russell Payne hadn't been taking LSD or marijuana, but rather prescription drugs. The defense, though, pointed to the testimony of a doctor who claimed that Russell Payne had killed both of his parents while he was in the midst of an epileptic seizure of sorts brought on by that prescription medication. Payne told the judge he didn't remember seeing his parents dead, although he admitted that he must have seen them dead. He did state that he recalled burning a mattress and other items in the fireplace. He similarly told the court he had only a vague recollection of burying his parents at the landfill. Russell said he did remember putting both of his parents' bodies in the car, but could not remember inflicting the massive post-mortem injuries found on his father's skull. Payne told the court he had entered his parents' bedroom on the night of June 11, 1969, holding a gun. From the darkness of the bedroom, he heard his father say, What's up, chum? At which point, Russell blindly fired two shots, and only two shots. Miraculously accurate shots, those must have been as each shot fired into the dark managed to hit his mother and then his father in the head. The specific drug that Russell Payne had been prescribed had been used since the 1950s to treat alcoholic depression, and there was some scientific evidence that the drug did cause epileptic behavior, at least in mice, and in 7 of 33 children who participated in a very small study of the drug in Australia. The defense's expert, though, presented no scientific evidence pertaining to that drug and its effect on adults, or any significant double-blind study of those effects. And the state did argue against the veracity of this scientific evidence, but only briefly. And on January 8, 1970, Russell Payne was sentenced to no less than 39 and a half years and no more than 40 years of hard labor at the Wyoming State Prison in Rollins. He was 25 years old. In the meantime, Payne pled guilty to the firearms charges for which he received two sentences totaling essentially seven years, since they would run concurrently, and those weapon sentences would also run concurrently to the manslaughter sentence, meaning essentially no time would be added to that sentence for the weapons charge. Russell Payne, it seems, did not mind prison as much as some of his fellow inmates. Just as his mother had become acclimatized to Jackson Hole almost overnight, Russell Payne made plenty of new friends in jail. The Wyoming State Penitentiary, it turns out, published a monthly magazine at the time called Best Scene. Its editor? None other than Russell Payne, following in his mother's footsteps, as it were. This guest editorial by Russell Payne appeared in a November 1970 edition of the Jackson Hole News. Whenever a tour comes through the institution, the people warily peer into the cells. They furtively examine any inmates that might be in view. Somehow, they expect to see the creature from the Black Lagoon or a teenage werewolf. If a person were to journey into the cell block any evening, he would find men sitting at their individual cells, quietly stitching, tooling, or lacing leather items for their friends and families. 
Men sitting in the mess hall TV room cheering for the Jets like any other group of sports fans. Men playing cards in the back schoolroom, down in the library. A Johnny Cash album on the stereo, where two men are playing chess. Another group of young boys are animatedly discussing every subject from the Middle East situation to the resolution of the identity crisis. Many of the men are college-aged youths who have been sidetracked for a year or two for possessing marijuana, writing bad checks, or getting into a fight. They sit and discuss plans for college, show each other pictures of girlfriends, look through the latest issue of Look or Life, and deplore the new fashions, resolve to quit smoking, look wistfully at an advertisement for a new Camaro, read through their English texts in preparation for tomorrow's tests. Seemingly, there is no tangible outward evidence that these men are any different from any others. And as one old con said, Why, a place without women and booze? How could a guy possibly get in trouble? While Russell Payne waxed philosophical from his prison cell, Martin and Emmeline Payne's other family members across the country began their own legal struggles. As you may have guessed, the Paynes were very well off. And as their son, Russell Payne was in line to be the couple's lone beneficiary of their estates upon their death. The fact that their death was caused by Russell Payne didn't technically matter under Wyoming law at the time. The proceedings surrounding that Payne estate fight went all the way to the state Supreme Court, but eventually in the summer of 1973, two years following their homicides, a half million dollars was handed down to their son, the person responsible for their death, Russell Payne. By 1974, Payne's sentence of hard labor had somehow translated into a hotel desk job at the Holiday Inn in Casper as a part of the prison's new work release program. He was assigned this post because of his lack of a prior criminal record and his being deemed as an especially low escape risk. Russell Payne was paroled in the fall of 1979, having served 10 years of a minimum 29-and-a-half-year sentence because that sentence had been commuted by Governor Ed Hirschler the year before. After being released, Russell Payne moved back to Las Vegas with $250,000 of his parents' money and assets. He has not been heard from since. Special thanks to our listener, our Patreon supporter, Barb, for suggesting this episode of the podcast. Anybody who is able to monetarily support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. Otherwise, we just appreciate you listening for free. You can reach out to me at wyomingpodcast.gmail.com or on Twitter at wyomingpodcast. Love to hear your feedback on the show and ideas for future episodes and stories. That's all the time we have for this month. For everyone at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.